0: Hey guys, if you're new here, just so you know, this is the Headstrong Podcast, and I am your host, Danielle Mills Walden. This is a place that you can come every single week to be motivated, inspired, and pushed to reach your best. Each week I have on special guests, whether they be pro athletes, entrepreneurs, business owners, C-suite executives, or everyday people just like you and I, because at the end of the day, Everybody's got struggles, everybody's got a story, and everybody has the means to tell their story so people can learn. But in order for this show to run and to be a success, it involves you. So make sure that you are interacting with us, answer our polls, answer our questions, and make sure that you are going by Spotify and Apple Podcasts and liking and rating the episodes. This makes a huge difference and allows us to get seen and be put on different platforms and get exposure so that we can bring you more amazing content. So, with that, let's get into the show. Before we get started, just a couple of words from our sponsors. Guys, we are supported by Clientel Skincare. This cruelty-free brand I have been using for almost a year now, and I have really seen the change in my skin. You guys know I really struggled when it comes to you know, taking off my makeup at the end of the day or having a dedicated skincare routine. And I really gave Clientele skincare my all for the past couple months. And they have been amazing. My skin is glowing. They have the best masks. All of their products are cruelty-free. And all you gotta do is go to clientelebeauty.com for the best skincare since 1979. Use my promo code HEADSTRONG10 for 10% off. Again, it's Head Strong 10. That's going to give you 10% off all of the amazing skincare that they have. This podcast is sponsored by Lux Label. You guys know how much I love JLUX Label. Literally like 70 to 80% of my whole closet is JLUX Label. And you know why? Because this brand has such an amazing quality. Their pieces are so unique and they really do have great things for taller women. That has always been my struggle is being able to find pants and jeans and jumpsuits and dresses that are really gonna be able to look nice on me in my five foot 10 frame. So just want to say that JLUX Label is phenomenal for that. They were founded by two sisters and they're really changing the game in their in what they're doing. So all you have to do is go to JLUXLabel.com and plug in your email to unlock 10% off of your next order, or you can go ahead and get their uh, app, which is awesome. And it's just JLUX Label. They are always coming out with new pieces. So go ahead and check them out. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Headstrong Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Mills Walden. I'm super excited today because we have a special guest that I was actually introduced by from my husband. He was on LinkedIn. He was looking and he started seeing her content. And he's like, Danielle, you need to talk to this woman. She is so powerful. And we have the wonderful Mita Malik on the show. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Me too. Me too. So before we kind of dive in, kind of how we start all of our episodes is by asking our guests, when was the first time that you felt headstrong?
1: The first time I felt headstrong was when I left a toxic, harassing, abusive, bullying boss who was gaslighting me for far too long. And I think when I finally woke up To that realization, understanding, and left to start the healing process. That's when I feel like I really embodied what it meant to be headstrong. And I think, as you, Daniel, you and I will, Daniel, you and I will talk about, is that's the birth of and the journey of Roundtable Talk podcast. Yes, and I'm so excited to dive into that. But that had to have taken
0: a lot of courage to get to that point to to leave because you know, going through that experience must have been really intense. And I can't, I don't know how long that was for, but the courage to actually
1: walk away is so powerful. It, it, it was for far too long. And I'm still am ashamed and embarrassed and angry. And I feel guilt talking about it. And if I see a silver lining or a gift and having to go through that is now that I'm stronger and better on the other side and that I can inspire other people to make a different choice in their lives. Absolutely,
0: and you're definitely doing that, but let's take it all the way back. I wanna kind of know how you know your beginnings were. Kind of talk to me about your upbringing and kind of how you kind of became the person you are today.
1: So I am the proud daughter of Indian immigrant parents. My younger brother and I were born and raised in the US and I grew up outside of Boston. And I always say, I grew up in a time and a place where it was not cool to be Indian. I think that still exists in many parts of our country and world today. But I was the funny looking dark-skinned girl. I had a long, funny looking braid down to my knees. My parents spoke funny English. They drove a minivan that had funny sounding music coming out of it. I brought a funny smelling lunch to school. And I say all that to say that funny is no longer becomes funny anymore because that becomes the gateway to stereotyping and hate. And I was bullied a lot, both verbally and physically growing up by my peers. They made me know every day and no certain terms that I did not belong there. And so that feeling, even as an adult now, still stays with me. I don't ever want anyone to feel that way. And I think back to our earlier conversation, what I never realized or, even thought about or wasn't prepared for, that those bullies from the schoolyards would follow me into corporate America, that they'd be waiting for me there. And so that is like, wow, like I thought I had left that behind, but it's been a theme throughout my life. No, absolutely. And as you're kind of saying that here, and you
0: know, now I've done all my homework, I've literally listened to all of your episodes and it's like, so. (laughs) triggering. Cause you know, obviously an episode that I really resonated with was the one talking about like, what do you do if somebody touches your hair? And I heard your story about what happened with your long braid. And I resonated with that myself because in kindergarten, a similar situation happened to me, not with a actual, like them burning it, but like yanking it and pulling on it in class. And it's just like, it's, it's amazing how something so simple as like hair can, can just change everything. And, you know, with you going through that experience, um, I think it's just, it's baffling that this still goes on today in corporate America. It's terrible.
1: I'm sorry that happened to you. That's really hard. I mean, I don't, when you're so young and impressionable, that's really, really difficult. It's really, really difficult.
0: It is for sure. But
1: it's, it's cool
0: because, um, you know, the one thing that like people like to use to try to like tear you down can be the one thing that becomes like your brand or like something special or unique about you. So that's kind of how we flipped it around, but let's kind of talk a little bit about, you know, what kind of prompted you to, to create Brown Table Talk with, with D Marshall and kind of put yourself out there with these stories. Where did that like stem from? And when did you guys decide, like, we're going to do this?
1: Well, I met Dee in 2017 at the Multicultural Women's Conference in New York City at the Marriott Marquis, and I remember her being on stage and being such a boss, and I was like, I want, this, I want to meet this woman, and our friend Laquanda Murray at the time introduced us. And what Dee didn't know was that she was brought into my life for a reason at that moment, because I was going through the toxic, bullying, harassing relationship, and that was like the start of that relationship at work. And so she came into my life, I hired her to be my coach, I hired her to work with my team and we did business for years. And we always just were texting each other and catching up for dinners and meals. And she taught me how to do audio messages. So I'm down with that. (laughs) And it was actually right before the pandemic, I was like, we should do a podcast. Like, I feel like no one is talking about these stories. Like we talk about it amongst ourselves but no one's bringing really light to these stories. And I was just fed up and tired because, you know, once I left that former employer, that former leader, and when I had the courage to tell people why I'd really left, I had so many women of color whispering back. That's why I left. That's why I left. I got a settlement. I started my own business. I left as well. I didn't sign anything. I'm on to another job now, and I'm in a great place. And so I was like, wow, like, I can't be alone in this. And so that's where it started. And I think it's all, I say it's a love letter to my younger self and my current self. I wish I had more community and conversation, especially early on, and even, I would say, the middle of my career. I, I just didn't know who to talk to about it with. And I think my parents, as much as i love them and respect them. And my dad, rest in peace, they were immigrants. They did everything they could to build an incredible life for our family and my my brother and I. And it was this sort of assimilated all costs. And we were so lucky to have these opportunities that we shouldn't complain. Mm-hmm. So leave a job because it was a toxic work environment, I think doesn't resonate sometimes for, I would say, my in the case of my parents' generation, and I think more and more, we are talking about workplace trauma mm-hmm. and that it's real. That's why you, you're having me on today to talk about it. And so that's what I think has really changed in the market. No, definitely. And there has really been like a shift
0: because to your point with what you're saying, like with your parents and their, their generation, you know, you're kind of just like accept things the way they are, you know, be thankful you even have an opportunity opportunity, you're working at a company and like, you know, you're kind of pushing back on that, like, no, we deserve so much more and we have to, you know, shed light on these stories and experiences. What kind of like feedback and messaging have you been getting from people With these episodes, like I can't only imagine what your inbox looks like. Yeah,
1: and I have been getting some overwhelming responses. I think, you know, when we first, so here's the thing: I believe you can upskill yourself on anything in life that you want to. We didn't know how to produce a podcast. So we found Rich Cardona Media and his team, Warren and Ellie. They've been great. And we did it. We self-funded the first season. And we did it and we do it. And then Rich is like, well, you're going to tell people you did it, right? Like you've got to send out an email. And I'm like, oh my God, is this the time we do it? And I'm like, what if no one listens to it? What if it sucks? What if, what if, what if? And it was just overwhelming. I had, we had one woman of color say to us, it's like, you're reading my personal journal. Like, how do you know what's in my head? People just saying, oh my God, this has happened to me. Oh my God, I can't believe you're talking about it aloud, especially the you know the more recent episodes around what to do when someone touches your hair, that people don't talk enough about that. And I know we have the Crown Act and other legislation that's making movement, but how horrific and what that experience is like and what you went through as a kindergartner, like how is that happening today mm-hmm. still? And I had white men in my life who reached out to me to say, I had no idea you were going through these things. You never shared these stories. And I said, Yeah, I just didn't feel comfortable. I wish I had shown up for you differently. And I said, I wish I would have let you know. I had one friend of mine, he missed his um, subway stop to work and he ended up like somewhere else, like in Brooklyn, he said, because he was just binging. Oh, <laughs> um, so he could tell from our time together. It was interesting. He was like, I know exactly the incident you're talking about. Oh my God. I, you know, and he had said to me, he wish he had shown up for me differently. And I said, yes. And I don't think I gave you the space to do that. I wasn't asking for help. Like I was so private about the things that were going on.
0: No, for sure. And I think like one of my favorite parts about the show and kind of just after hearing a lot of different episodes is the way you guys give, you know, allies tools of what they can do. Because, you know, one of the questions I have is like, I'm sure you have a lot of people who want to be allies and they show up and they're like, okay, like, what do I need to do? Or what should I be doing? And it's like, they're always asking for like, what, how do I make it better? And I love that on the episodes and the tips that you give and just framing it, like you're giving them tangible things that they need to do. It's like, no, you can't just silently like let this stuff go by. You have to be active and present and stand up and say, and do things. And I think that's what people need because everybody wants to help, but who actually is going to do? I think that's the big thing.
1: And I think it's interesting you bring that up. I think, I think we always do that was in the intent from the start. It was for women of color and allies, so this podcast is not just for women of color. Everyone needs to be listening to it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's for women of color. It's community and conversation. It's the feeling that you're not alone, but nothing, I'm sure, shocks you on that podcast, right? You're like, wow. yep, yeah, been there, done that, seen it, experienced it. It is a way, as Dee would say, it's that you're hustling, allies get to listen into stories. They're, I'm, we're giving them a seat at the table of a story that they might not have normally heard. And when Dee and I first started sort of doing the podcast and bantering back and forth, I would just stop and be like, well, Dee, if you were an ally, if I was an ally, I might not understand this. Like this actually doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And then I wonder, is it my place to do anything? Is it my place to show up? Do I let this slide? And so it actually just, I think organically involved in our conversation evolved in our conversations. And I hope you get a sense from the podcast that D and I have a deep respect, admiration, and love for each other. So when we get on, it's not like, oh God, here we have to record an episode. It's like (laughs) our podcast producer being like, wrap it up, wrap it up. We are only doing this for like, you know, you said you wanted it to be less than uh, 30 minutes. Sometimes they're 17, sometimes they're 20. We want to have it juicy enough that you're like, wanting to spark conversation afterwards with the people in your life. And we don't want to be talking for an hour. Yeah. It's valuable.
0: No, I think it's amazing. You're able to condense it because with each episode, I'm like, Oh my gosh, like there could, that could be like a two hour conversation, but I'd love that you guys like make it so impactful and you, you can kind of condense it down. Um, one of the episodes that really resonated with me was the one where you talked about, um, like, how do you like deal with like being a, being the diversity hire or what that yes. looks like? And it literally brought me back. Cause you know, my background, a little bit crazy. I was like a pro tennis player, but then I got into corporate America and on the tech side, the tech startup side. And the first, um, the second two startups I was a part of, I was the first, African or black person to be at that company. And I'm thinking like, as I'm hearing this episode, I'm like, I'm wondering like, dang, was I the diversity hire? Did they look at me? Like I checked the box. And then I just remember being at a all hands and you know, I'm very like bold with things. I like went up to the CEO and I was like, Hey, like we got to get some more brown people here. Like I can't be the only one. And he like looked at me, he's like, Oh, do you know somebody? And it triggered me because of what you said, like we can't always be the solution. Like there needs to be a plan. outside of us and like being the people
1: to bring in the talent oh, gosh I'm so sorry you felt that way we've all been made to feel that way haven't we yeah, like you it's like hired you know somebody well, no and also you earned that seat you were hired for your talents and so for you to then wonder oh my god was I only hired because of how I look or how they think I identify and then also to be like oh do you know black and brown friends it's like do you know black and brown do you friends? know anybody else? Right, you CEO, because if you don't, let's start there. We're all so many of us are self-segregating when it comes to our networks. I talk to as you talk about founders a lot. When you're scaling fast and growing fast, it's like, oh, I, I just put this out to my LinkedIn network, and I, you know, I got some employee referrals, and oh my God, we have to work on diversity representation. We'll start with the fact that that's like intent versus impact. Sounds like a really good intention, but guess what? The impact is that your network itself isn't diverse. Right. And and that kind of also
0: brought me back to like kind of looking at your background, your experience, you know, always kind of well, now so more recently working in specifically like diversity, inclusion, that type of field. I just realized for myself like previous companies I've worked for, like that didn't even exist as yeah. a position in those companies. And it makes me wonder like, you know, with like a lot of startups, like that just doesn't that just doesn't play a part. And there's just so much opportunity there. So I wanted to ask you like what made you want to get into that specific field? And then do you feel like there's so much room for growth in that specific field because there's still so many companies who just, you know, think that HR is going to check that box when it doesn't?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I was at Unilever. I still consider myself a marketer. I'm a passionate storyteller. I sold a lot of beauty products in my career. And I was at Unilever when my then CEO asked me three times to head up D E and I had never been done before. And I said, no, twice, three times. And on the fourth time, my younger brother was like, you better say yes. He's asked you this many times, but also he said, look at your story and your career path and what you're passionate about. Imagine if you could do this inside a company. Imagine if you could be a, a corporate change maker. And so for me, that was really the moment that I thought, I love challenges. I love blank space. I love tackling problems that are really hard to solve. And that that the space has all of that. And I also have a really strong understanding of how businesses run at a P&L, which I think think is important, no matter where you sit in the company. And to your point on, you know, since the diversity tipping point, as my good friend DC Marshall has coined May of 2020, I mean, the role for chief diversity officers, head of diversity has tripled, doubled, no sign of slowing down according to LinkedIn research. Mm So I think that this role is here to stay for all the reasons you point out, because it can't be relegated to HR. It has to be seen as a driver of the business, that it is it is about workforce. It's also about do your products and services show up inclusively in the marketplace? It's also about who are you writing checks to and why when it comes to supplier diversity? Do you have the same five agencies of record, right? And then also comes to values. Like You can say you're ready to stand up value. You can say very easily that on Instagram, Black Lives Matter, but are you ready to stand up for that, for those values when it matters? And I think more and more, particularly with a younger generation entering the workforce and how the world has changed just in the last two and a half years, you can no longer afford to ignore any of those things. And so you need somebody leading those efforts.
0: No, absolutely. And one thing I think you guys mentioned in the podcast about that position why it's so important that it reports to the CEO and not to HR. Can you kind
1: of talk about why that's so important? Yeah, I think why it's important is that it is about accountability. It's about resourcing. It's about budget. So, you know, if HR is only going to give a certain, get a certain pot of money, and then you put the CDO in there. you're like, oh, CDO has to get a piece of that, right? Versus being fully funded, fully staffed, accountability, C, the the CEO, but also a seat at the C-suite, a seat at the C-suite. And I think D talks about this a lot too. It's like there's healthy tension between HR and DE&I, and there should be, and it should be good tension, right? Because oftentimes classically human resources has been seen as making sure that the company is doing right by its people and putting the company first. And sometimes in the diversity equity and inclusion work, employees are coming to you to show up as an advocate for them. And so I think there's that that tension that needs to be there. And I think some of our processes were built in, were built decades ago, decades and decades ago. And so to think about having a someone running DEI who can look at things through an inclusive lens lens and Challenge and partner, I think, is so important. No, definitely, I think that
0: is super, super powerful. Um, I want to talk about one episode that I was
1: one of my favorites. I mean, I have so many. Oh yeah, it's like I choosing love. between my children. Someone asked me, I was like, I have two kids, six and nine. I was like, No, I can't choose between them. It's like you know, know. <laughs> they're all great. But yes, tell me your favorite. Yes, yeah, so this episode. is one of my favorites because on this podcast, you know,
0: a lot of the themes that we talk about on the Headstrong podcast is you know. People have a lot of success, they achieve a lot of success, but how does their, how do their mindset help them get there? How do their mindset help them overcome obstacles, overcome adversity? And the episode that really resonated with me was the one about how do you negotiate, you know, your offer, your salary, things of that nature. And one of the things that you talked about and Dee really highlighted was the fact that you know, in your negotiations, you were able to put on the table that you were going to still own your likeness and your brand and being able to speak on that. And I think that's so powerful. We talk a lot in this podcast about the importance of building a personal brand outside of your work. And I think it's so amazing. You mentioned that because so many people don't even think of that. And then it really hurts them later. we talk about that specific part, and then we'll definitely talk about some other things with that. Cause I think that is such a powerful episode.
1: Well, I will tell you that I had tried to pitch HBR for years, Harvard Business Review. My dad loved reading it. I remember the magazine growing up and it was like a dream. And it took me almost three or four years to finally crack the right piece and the right angle. And one of the first pieces I wrote for them is, do you know why you need a chief diversity officer? Do you know why you need a chief diversity officer? Because we're having this conversation right now. I was getting so many calls in the marketplace for myself or friends. And so I was like... I need to write this piece because a lot of people are getting it wrong. Do you know when I wrote that piece, never posted it, never shared it? Because at that time I knew my former toxic boss would lose his mind that I had gotten published in HBR. And so I buried it. You can't really bury things with the internet, but I did not post it, I didn't share it. Like how awful that I Uh. couldn't own this amazing achievement. And so as I was looking for new opportunities and when I had met with my boss, um, who's was the CEO of Carta, I just, was, just said to him, like, you know, when he made me the offer, we were chatting, I was like, these are some of the things that are important to me. I love to write. I wanna make sure that you're supportive of it. I always try to do it from a place of like positivity and like, I'll have a story, but I, want, I don't want that story to be repeated. I want people to think about how we can show up differently for each other. I also wanna be on a board seat. I'm still on a journey. So anyone listening, um, if you have openings or thinking about board members, please think of me. But I am looking at board opportunities as well. And, and he was like, I'm supportive of all of that. But I think that's important to have that conversation up front, right? Cause I had known from my past experience that it wouldn't be well received. And here's the thing, I work in tech. I'm not about to indict tech. I really enjoy my job and I really enjoy my role. Right. And so I think that's also, and I I know you talk this a lot too, in terms of personal branding and voice. Mm -hmm. If your values no longer imply and match your employers, then that's the time you need to move on. But it's not the time to indict them on social media when you work there. I always coach people on that. So to be really careful about that line, and you want to show up, I want to show up as a positive voice, not just for myself, but also for my company and my community.
0: Absolutely. I think that there's, such a misconception about like putting yourself out there from a personal standpoint with your brand. But I think honestly, what it does is it people become intrigued about you, what you're doing. They love what you're saying and what you're putting out there. And then they're like, Oh, where does she work? And then it like connects the two together. And I think companies should be leveraging that a lot more when they're looking at candidates, because if somebody wants to put the effort to have a personal brand, things that they're passionate about, that's only going to make what they do for you at your company that much better. So I feel like you're representing Carter in such a positive way that like, it's a win for them too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. Um, I know that you said that it's like picking one of your children, but (laughs) what, what, which episode for you, do you feel like either gave you guys like the biggest reaction or you felt like after you like completed it, you're like, wow, that one's really going to strike a chord. Like, did you guys have one that you guys looked at each other like, whoa, when you finally like cut it?
1: (laughs) Gosh, I, they're all our babies. We feel that way. Cause what we do is try to find one insight that we talk about for 20, 30 minutes. So I feel like there's so many, I think one that was like surprising to me or surprising from the feedback I got from allies. One of the first episode we ever did was how to get credit for your work. And for the white men in my life to say, what, that happened to you? People have stolen your work. And this real sort of like moment of like, wow, we've hit on something because all of my girlfriends, the sisterhood, everyone's like, oh yeah, been there, been there. And then for people to reach out and be like, I can't, on LinkedIn comments or messages or texts, like, wow, that happened, that happened to you? And I'm like, this is happening all day, every day to women of color, like this is, that to me, that was our first episode. And it was one that was personal because I had struggled with that for a while happening to me. And then for, I think it was like an interesting moment for some of the allies in my network to, to understand that that's a real thing. Yeah.
0: That is such a huge thing because, and you know, I'm in a leadership role now in the company I'm with today and because of experiencing that, and I'm sure you're like this too, or you, you coach people on this. It's like, you want to like highlight people's work so much and what they're doing because you don't want them to not get the credit that they deserve for what they're doing. And it's just so terrible that it's so easy for people to just think like, oh, because you're on my team or you work for me, like what you do is is mine. So I can just leverage it. And I, I it just
1: makes me cringe to know that that still happens so much. Just it just bothers me so much. And it's like, you shine, I shine. Yeah, of course. If you're on my team, the work you do, needs to stand for itself, but if you're doing good work and you're on my team, it also reflects really well on me. And I just don't understand how leaders sometimes can't make that shift in their head in terms of servant leadership. Like you actually don't report into me, I report into you. Like it's this idea that we're at this virtual table all together, right? Everyone has an equal seat. So that, yeah. That, was, yeah. that one's really powerful. Okay. There's one more episode I want to talk
0: about before we sure. dive into something else. And that one really struck a chord with me too, which is the one you talked about, about being gaslit Yes. and your story. Can you kind of share that story really quick with our audience? And then we can kind of dive into what that looks like, because then you talked about, you know, imposter syndrome and how like, that's kind of a cause of that. And I was like, wow, this is, this is big. And it's making me think of like, oh my gosh, have I witnessed this happen? You
1: know? (laughs) Yeah. No, thank you for bringing that up. And I am happy and sad that that So resonated with you. That's how I feel when someone says that. I'm like, it's happy and sad. I wrote a piece for Harvard Business Review entitled, What to Do When the Boss Gaslights the Employee. It took me maybe two years to have the courage to write that piece. Mm -hmm. I had no idea the response I would get. I, I had no idea. People were pouring in with their stories, and I was like, wow. And then Dee and I decided to talk about it on the podcast, it was. It's interesting because gaslighting was a term coined in the 1970s, and it was really a lot about personal relationships and what happens in personal relationships. And I think no one had ever really talked about it in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And it's really the term gaslighting, as you know, is really about minimizing someone's experience, denying, dismissing, and really just like rocking what reality looks like. And the simple way I always say is like you are sitting next to each other, and I slapped you across the face, and you looked at me and said, "Why did you slap me across the face?" And I. Looked at you just straight in the eye and said, I, I didn't slap you across the face. And so it's this ability to just really invalidate your experience and everything that you think is true, you start to question. And I, oh gosh, I was gaslit for too many years, bullied, harassed, gaslit. And what it ends up doing is it shakes your confidence and your sense of self worth so badly that you don't think you deserve better. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it took me a lot of time to leave that job because people would say to me things that weren't helpful. Well, why didn't, why aren't you leaving? Why don't you leave sooner? And what people don't understand is it like, it chips away at you. And now I'm in a place where I'm healing and trying to reclaim all those pieces of myself that I lost through that experience. Like it's really, if, if you've been through it, you understand what I'm talking about. No, definitely.
0: And like, people don't understand like to leave a company when you're feeling at your lowest, that doesn't really put you in a very confident space to go get something else. So Absolutely.
1: it's like, and how you show up in interviewing and your energy, my energy yeah. was off, even though I was smiling, but people knew, and you know, what's really, you just don't know what's going on behind the screen, the grief mm-hmm. and the pain and the suffering. And I had a big title, big company, external presence. No one knew what was going on. In terms of the work relationship with that boss, and so it's very easy to judge, like, people couldn't believe I had moved on, right? Like, why would you leave that role? And it's like, here's the reason why. Wow, that's just crazy that
0: that's still going on to this day. Because, like, I have, I you would, um, that episode was the first time I had ever heard about it in the workplace, I'd always heard about gaslighting and in personal relationships, and that's why it's so tough to leave, but. I never thought about it from like a workplace standpoint and what that could look like for someone. And when you when you talked about the story and then specifically the example of like being invited to, to meetings and then like being left off the inviter, like not, and then the whole thing going on, I'm like, wow, there's so many Zoom meetings going, going on right now. Like this could be happening all over the place. It just made me think about like, oh my goodness, I need to have my eyes even more open about it because I didn't even think of it
1: until I heard that episode. I love what you just brought up about imposter syndrome.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Ruchika and Jodi, who I feel like are LinkedIn friends. I've never actually met them. They wrote a really important piece for HBR that talks, talks about stop call, stop telling women of color they have imposter syndrome. And the first time it showed up for me at work, and it's I think it's very connected to gaslighting. So for me... I remember this former boss and I, we went to this huge conference, they were interviewing pairs on stage and we were nominated. There was probably a thousand people in this conference. We were on stage with like four other pairs. We did the panel, we got off. And he said to me, the first thing he said to me was, you weren't nervous. You must've been nervous. You weren't nervous. I mean, there were so many people out there. Like, how could you not have been nervous? And I was like, you know what? wasn't nervous. <laughs> oh, but it, it starts like that, right? I wasn't nervous. I was prepared. I was confident. I was excited to be there. But that's when the like you're seeding, you're seeding imposter syndrome by doing that. You're putting it upon me. I was not actually nervous. I was the energy. I was excited that we were doing this. Oh, you had to have been nervous. There were so many people out there. Are you sure you covered everything you wanted to say? Meanwhile, afterwards, you know how it is pre-pandemic, back in the days that we're going back to live conferences. You have a panel, you come off stage. If you something resonated, people come up to you. They want to share, they want to talk. And that was certainly the case. We had done a really strong job as a panel. We had a lot of conversations afterwards. So that's how it shows up. I really like that you highlighted that point because I think gaslighting is very connected to how you you can put imposter syndrome upon people.
0: Yeah. It's almost like they're putting their own like insecurities on top of you. And it's like, no, I'm actually good. And I'm, I'm kind of like you, like if I feel prepared and ready to go, like I'm good. But when other people start like doubting everything it makes you like reconsider for a
1: second. You're like, well, should I have been nervous? Like, <laughs> yeah. And I love what you just said. It's like, they're putting their own insecurities on you because he was insecure. He was unsure. And he's like, how is she so sure? Right. I was, she, 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 not, she, no, I'm good. I'm good. Right. But then you want to take all of your anxiety and nervousness and your sort of self-doubt and put it on me to make me, to make me feel smaller and be smaller. No, absolutely. Um, I just want to go back to
0: one point where we were talking about how to like negotiate your, your yes. offer and your, your salary and things of that nature. And I feel like that topic is one that, gets talked about often, and you know everybody puts the data out there. Women make less, and especially women of color, they make less. But there's always like men, or you know, yes. white men always want to be like, "Well, that's not true," and whatever the case is. But I feel like, from, from my own experience, my own research, and you know, looking into and seeking advice on like how to negotiate, and how to do things like kind of arms me with different tools. So when I'm in situations like that, I feel like I have stuff to work with, but do you feel like a lot of the difference is because a lot of women of color like don't have the education on what to do in those situations. So that's why they are more likely to take what is um, presented to them and just run with it instead of feeling like they can negotiate
1: that. Like, I'm really interested yeah. about your opinion on that. I think yes and no. So as I talk about on the podcast, my cultural upbringing, which many of us don't really talk about, is like that. those 18 years of my life played a number on me in a positive and negative way. Like I carry that with me. And so as someone who identifies as South Asian culturally, I was always brought up not to talk about money. And there's this piece about like always deferring to authority and trusting the system and trusting that people will do right by you. And so if you are being valued at $80,000 a year, you should be grateful. You shouldn't negotiate. Why would you ask for more? You should be grateful. So that the gratitude, the hospitality, the never deferring to authority, that always was in my mind. So I was always afraid, like I shouldn't do it, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not, that doesn't work in corporate America, right? If you don't ask, you won't get. But on the flip side, I will tell you, to your point, when I have done the research, when I have shown up with the smile, when I have been as gracious as I can to ask for someone to review my salary, it doesn't always go the way you want it to. And again, with this former gaslighting boss, I remember being on the leadership team, which is not uncommon, this is happening in this market, a lot of people entering and exiting teams, and they had brought in a number of people externally, and we all know what happens, you move externally you can negotiate more than you can internally and so i knew i was being paid pretty abysmally versus my peers in the market i had access to the data like i knew and so i went in with a smile and i was like i'd love for you to value reevaluate my salary and this was during performance review and exactly what you said came prepared do you know what his response is you can lean in haven't shared this on the podcast yet this is internal yeah he said to me you and your husband me to make more than enough money you and your husband make more than enough money so somehow he had found out what my husband had did did for a living which I had tried to actually keep from him because I knew this is, this is part of his story and he was using it against me and so this is actually and I was like so stunned into silence and so I didn't have a retort what do you say Mm -hmm. they're like, you're not valuing me. Now I know what to say. It's like, this is about me, not my husband. This is about me and my worth. But imagine the thing I appreciated about this former boss is he showed up as who he was. And as Dr. Maya Angelou says, when people show you who they are the first time, believe him, it took me 10 times, but, and Mm -hmm. so what's interesting is he is saying out loud what other people are thinking. So think about the decisions when you're looking at talent and you're like oh but this person is the breadwinner. Oprah talks about this famously. Like she talks about one of her first broadcast journalist experiences and she's like my white man counterpart is getting paid more than me but he has a family to support. You're like what? So this is what so this is like sort of the the gender stereotypes hierarchy all of those things that we're trying to dismantle in our workforces but just to, just to close out on, on the point you were asking about is I think that women of color are negotiating. It's not always received well, and they're shut down and they're gaslit for it.
0: Oh, so if that, like, if you were to give your previous self advice, like what do you do in that situation? Like, what are you supposed to do when that happens? Is that when you take that to HR or how do you even,
1: I, I wouldn't even know what to do myself you could take it to hr you can try to talk to human resources to say you know here's what i'm making i want given my roles and responsibilities like you said all the data points you have i'd love someone to look at my case because you know what they could look at your case and they could come back and say you're being paid fairly and equitably but you might not know because many employers aren't transparent about the pay range right so you're not mm-hmm. going to know like and they could come back and that's happened to me before Where again, if I trust the system, they'll say you're actually in the midpoint. Okay, so there's room to grow, or you're actually at the highest level. But let me help you work on getting a promotion, which I've had really great managers do in the past. Listen, I think sometimes you have to vote with your feet. Mm -hmm. The hot market right now, it's not the greater resignation, it's the great awakening, as I say. People are no longer going to put up with what they did before. I would say, particularly women of color. So if you are not getting paid what you're worth, start interviewing and start seeing what you're your value is in the market. No, absolutely. When you kind of mentioned, um,
0: you know, that you can go to somebody kind of give them the case and they can kind of see where you are. And I don't know if this is just like a stereotype or what it is, but throughout my whole career, they've always, there's always been like leaders or people telling me like, you never discuss your salary. You never talk about that with people. But then on LinkedIn, I see a lot of posts and things where, you know, they, they talk about like, you should be talking about with others and it shouldn't be so hush hush and they're trying to like pass legislation in different states of like putting it out there on job postings and things so i'm really curious like there's such conflicting views on that and like kind of how to navigate
1: you have to do what's right for you but well i will say not talking about money and my salary did more harm than good for me because if i wasn't asking mentors leaders people in the ecosystem, not just at your company, just in your community, right? Not like how much they were making. You, you're not going to know if you're not on Glassdoor, you're not doing the research, you won't know. Right. And so even as you talk about what data are you putting together, if you are a senior brand manager, um, at a large CPG company, let's say you could, you know, put together a case to be like, what is the total compensation for this role? Like six other, seven other data points. And what do I mean by that? Let's remember everyone listening. It's not just the base. I, for too long, like was focused on base. It is base, it is stock grants, it is retention bonuses. It is target for, you know, your annual bonus. It is budget for L and D, a coach, right? All of those things, it's benefits, right? If you're thinking of starting a family, If you're in the sandwich generation, you have elder care, there's so many things, right? So you have to really think about what's the total comp for your role? What is it valued in the market? And then you can go back and be like, listen, I've done my research. And the researchers use it. It's not hard to find these days. It used to be, it's not hard. You can find what that role is in the market. You could also take calls from recruiters.
0: Get those experiences well, yeah. No, that's super powerful. And I love that, you know, on your podcast, you guys are sharing so many things that, you know, yes, there are a lot of experiences that people are going through, but giving them so many tangible pieces of advice that they can use to take action and make changes. And I think that's what's been my best like experience of listening to your, to your show is feeling like, dang, like I've been through a lot of these experiences. Some of them I haven't. So I'm like trying to take it all in, but also like seeing the tangible things, the five key points at the end of like what to do and kind of how to keep it going. And I love that with each episode, like I want to have a discussion or talk about what's going on. And I think that that's incredible. So I wanted to ask you like, where do you see this going and what are your goals for the podcast?
1: oh gosh, we want it to grow. We want to have celebrity guests. We right now, it's just the two of us because we have such a good relationship and we banter back and forth. Maybe it'll evolve someday. Right now, we don't take any guests. We just talk about topics that, you know, honestly, we're talking about over text and at dinner. And Dee and okay. will say, last dinner we had, she's like, wait, let's save that for the podcast. Because it's really, that's what it really is. I mean, Link, the LinkedIn podcast network has been so supportive. They picked us up after we self-funded. So we're with them this year. Listen, you just talked about offers, right? We're open. <laughs> you should be open. I'll give myself that advice, right? Yes. We love LinkedIn. We want to grow with them. And we're also not, not sure where else it will go. We want to just be as big of a platform as it can be. You will see in our upcoming episodes, something new that we're doing because Dee and I have earned this platform. We want to lift up as many women of color as possible. And I'm particularly passionate about women of color founders. So at the beginning of every episode, we give a shout out to a woman of color founder of a product or service we're using. Uh, And they don't know it yet. Hopefully they're listening, but yeah, we just, we were, they're not paid advertisements. We're just picking people in the market and products that I love. Oh, I love that. I love that so much because it's going to give that
0: exposure to those women, but also like just putting it out. I love that. I think that's
1: amazing. I'm so excited. Well, that'll be this Thursday. You'll see, um, coming our next episode, some of the new ones we'll see coming up. Yeah, no, I love that. Well,
0: to kind of close it off, is there one last piece of advice you'd like to leave our listeners as they go
1: into this upcoming week that they can take and kind of go from there? Just one thing. Listen, I'm going to go on the theme of what we've been talking about, what you invited me to talk about a few times during our conversation. It really goes back to worth. Don't let anyone define your worth. Don't let anyone else define your worth. You define your worth and you set the tone in everything you do. I love that. I love that. Well, I
0: appreciate you so much Mita for coming on, sharing so many amazing stories with you. I'm hopefully at one point we'll get a chance to meet in person. I'm living in California right now. I think you're on the East coast, but yes. I'm moving back to the East coast in September. So you never know. And I, and I just, I love watching you grow and I can't wait to see you speak on more and more stages. Uh, well,
1: thank you. And a special shout out to your husband for yes. introducing us the magical yes. connector. Yes. Okay. Thank you. That's why LinkedIn is so powerful. Yes, it is. <laughs> awesome. Thanks thank for having you. Me.
0: Thank you.